remember to turn on the, the recorder or I get to go home and read it to myself again. <laughs> I've read it, I've, I've enjoyed this tremendously and I was very blessed to be able to do this lecture, but um, I've read it one uh, lots of times and that should be enough. Uh, we're going to be on Acts 18 and uh, chapter 19 verses to 20. He says, I want to share some words with you today that I got from a recent email. While the writers of scripture use many vivid metaphors to describe the Christian life, by far the most common one in the New Testament is a walk. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the uh, desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.16 If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Galatians 5.25 I therefore, a prisoner, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a matter worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Ephesians 4.1 There is, therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans 8 verse 1 the theme of walking echoes throughout Ephesians. Walk in love, 5 verse 2. Walk as children of life, 5 verse 8. Look carefully then how you walk, verse 5, 15. Walking depicts the course of an individual's holy, whole life. Enoch and Noah, they walked with God, Genesis 5:22 and 6 verse 9. King Yehu did not, Kings 10, verse 31. It's a predominant inspired metaphor in scripture and a picture of what our relationship should be and what it should look like to God. The Lord has invited you to walk with him together on a whole journey of life. So walk with me now as we see Paul do just that in Acts 18 and 19. Verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Here we find Paul working a year and a half in the city of Corinth. Corinth wasn't like, any, wasn't like the city he had just left. Three words help you to visualize just what it was like. It was cosmopolitan, it was commercial, because it was a very large on the, on the trade route, and it was definitely corrupt. Corinth was the center of the cult love goddess Aphrodite. Being called a Corinthian was definitely not a compliment. It was synonymous with the most perverted behavior of the time. Paul had a different, difficult time on his first and second journeys. He had been opposed on every front. The opposition now seemed to be even increasing. He was alone, leaving his co-workers in Macedonia, he tried to accomplish this important work, and then he even found it necessary to support himself. Verse 1, it continues to tell us that he, he sought out Priscilla and Aquila, who were tent makers. In verse 4, we see he lived and worked with them in the synagogue every Sabbath, his, with talking about his message of salvation to both Jews and the Greeks. He was really devoted to his preaching, is in verse 5, only to be met with abusive opposition, verse 6, so much so that eventually he shook out his clothes in protest. Their response, they became even more abusive. 
How discouraging that must have been to him. Just when he starts to see the events of the past being replayed, God intervenes and he encourages him. Paul had tried to carry on alone in Athens and he was alone again in Corinth. Christian ministry is not mentioned to be a sole effort. It is a team effort. So God saw to it that Silas and Timothy came south from Macedonia to help him out. Not only did they arrive to help him, but they brought with them from financial help from the Macedonian churches that they had already planted. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. Finally, he gets to see some fruits of his efforts. We are told that Titus, that Titius Justus, a Gentile in verse 7, and Crippus, the leader of the synagogue in verse 8, are believers. Finally, both Jews and Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. God now speaks to Paul some words of encouragement in a vision. Do not be afraid, verse 9. What? Paul's afraid? The one who was stoned, beaten, imprisoned, and yet sang songs of praise while being held by stocks in Philippi? He was afraid? Well, yes, he must have been for God to tell him not to be. Fear does not equate with unbelief. Paul is human, and he's still capable of nervous anticipation. We, too, have times of fear of the unknown. We need to lean on the only one who can provide the relief of fear that we need, just as Paul did. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, says verse 9. What? The man who was compelled to speak? God spoke. So Paul must have had some thoughts about this. God was telling him, do not change what you're doing. God had specifically chosen him to preach. I am with you, he says in verse 10, repeating the great commission in Matthew 28, 20. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Even David struggled with feeling alone. But remember, if God says it's true, it is. And then God adds, no one is going to attack and harm you, verse 10. He was again in the same trouble as he was in before. Verse 12 tells us that the Jews made a uh, united, brutal attack on Paul. They, and they even dragged him into court. Here is where God's word comes to fruition. Gallio was proconsul in Corinth. And being a wise and a very astute man, before Paul could even speak in his defense, he recognized that, you know, this isn't a civil matter but it's basically a religious dispute. Verse 13 tells us that Paul is now unjustly accused. Here comes God with his words in action. Gallio threw the matter out of court. He wouldn't even go to the trouble of hearing the case as in verses 14 and 15. Now it even gets better. Gallio throws them all out of court. Verse 16. How great is our God in action. Next, God tells Paul, I have many people in this city. Verse 10. Paul must have thought, people? What people? I only saw the few to whom I preached. 
Again, if God said it's true, it must be true. So with his solid faith and encouragement given by God, Paul responded immediately as seen in verse 11. So Paul stayed on a year and a half teaching the word of God. God's encouragement so affected Paul that this became a turning point in his ministry. God was with him. He didn't have to fear or move around, just like he had to do all the times before. So having to get to stay in one place, he started an in-depth teaching over a longer period of time. He now saw the need to solidly ground those new believers that he had in the faith. Now we're going to return to the scene back at the court. The abuse just keeps raging on. This time it's not directed at Paul, but Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. The Greeks turn on him in anger at his not being successful at pleading their case in court. Or maybe it was just rage against the Jews in general. Pure wickedness in action. Either way, Gallio took no action even though it was performed right before him at the judgment seat as in verse 17. Here is wickedness in the place of judgment, which Solomon complains of in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 16. Gallio, as a judge, was to pr protect Theosthenes and punish the Greeks. Not much has changed since then in our actions and our judgments of others, especially in response to unfavorable judgments. All you need to do is watch and listen to the news. Solomon was right, there's nothing new under the sun. We need to be as Paul was, a light in the darkness holding on to the promises of God. So let's move on in our study. You know, one of the great things about closed doors is that they're not always closed forever. Sometimes God uses a closed door just to send us in another direction, but then later opens that very same door. Acts 16 reported how Paul wanted to go to Asia, and God said, no. In Asia, there was the major city of Ephesus. As Paul and his companions wrapped up their second journey, he finally gets to arrive in Ephesus and plant the seeds of what was to become a great ministry. It was there he was to spend a considerable length of time. Paul's second journey begins in Acts 15, verse 36. And the third ends in Acts chapter 21. Here's the problem. It's not easy to see where the second journey ends and the third begins. It's found in verses 22 and 23. This is where Paul leaves Ephesus and lands in Caesarea. There he went up, meaning he went up to the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is elevated. You always go up to Jerusalem. And then he went down, back again, to Antioch, where he started his journey. Verse 23. After spending some time there, he set out, marking the beginning of his third journey. A new mission field had begun with Acts 18, verses 18 and 19. First thing to notice that is that Priscilla and Aquila were new workers in this field. They were hard-working Jewish tent makers that came from Rome. Then they came to Corinth where, uh, when they were banished by the emperor of Rome, as were all the other Jews. 
They worked with Paul in Corinth and they traveled with him to Ephesus where they established a home to do business. This home eventually became where the members of the church met. While at Centria, Paul, in gratitude to God, made a Nazarite vow by cutting his hair. Now it was required that if you made a vow like this, outside of the city of Jerusalem, you must present those shorn locks in Jerusalem at the temple in 30 days. So he leaves Ephesus, goes back up to Jerusalem, and then he returns to Antioch. End of the second journey. In verse 2 of chapter 19, we are told of Apollos, an interesting and eloquent man who came to Asia from Alexandria, North Africa. Apollos was very different than Achilla and Priscilla, who were Jews. He was a Gentile. They were married. He was single. They were a working couple. He was an intellectual. They came from Rome, and he came from Alexandria and Egypt. Acts mentions, mentions several facts about Apollos. Apollos was a learned man, came verse 24. His credentials were unbelievably impressive. He had a thorough knowledge of scriptures, also in 24. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, verse 25. Lord, in that verse, refers to Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament, and Apollo spoke with great fervor in verse 25. He did not merely know the Old Testament or merely have the skill just to relay the Old Testament. It is, it is mentioned here the word fervor. This conveys conviction of something that is deeply embedded in your heart. Apollos taught accurately what he knew of Jesus, but he only knew what was referenced by the baptism of John. This was a baptism of repentance. I think that he knew the Messiah was coming, he, uh, but he didn't know the gospel of Jesus as Savior. Enter Achilla and Priscilla. They listened to this very eloquent, gifted speaker, and they realized what was missing in his message. They spoke to him alone, and the gospel of Jesus, crucified and resurrection, was given to him. Paulus then... He received the gospel, and he did it very humbly. He accepted it, he believed it, and he joined it with all the knowledge that he already had. He completely transformed his ministry, as seen in verses 28 and 29. He now publicly refuted the Jews' teaching and began teaching from the scripture that Jesus is the Christ. Different kinds of people are needed in Christ's mission field. Different, yet all needed. Paul, with his energetic missionary fervor, Apollos, who watered the seed that Paul had sown, Priscilla and Achilla, who settled down, opened their home, and became a host to a developing church. Each was necessary, and so are you. If you are a disciple of Christ, you are very necessary. The Holy Spirit has given each and every one of you a very distinct spiritual gift. Search it out. See where you fit in God's plan. Pray about it. For the Lord said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Matthew 9:37. We're now going to enter Acts 19, verses 1 to 20. We left Paul in chapter 1823 visiting several churches. 
Now he has not forgotten the promise he made to the church in Ephesus. He would come back and spend some extended time with them. Paul now returns as he promised to the city of Ephesus. This was a great city in Asia. Listed as one of the seven wonders of the world was its temple to Diana. Leaving Apollos to grow the church in Corinth, he met up again with Priscilla and Aquila and that had joined, uh, he had journeyed through Galatia and Phygia and along the coast of Pontus and Bithynia. Now in Ephesus, he began to teach the disciples there. He began to realize that they, you know, they were really young in the faith, believing only in the baptism of John. Now repentance is necessary for salvation, but then you need to believe in the one who can be ransomed for those sins that you're acknowledging. He asked them if they had received the Holy Spirit when they believed in verse 2. Paul's question to them was to clarify what they believe. Since a believer receives the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, this would tell them if they were Old Testament seekers or New Testament believers. In verse 3, he asked the disciples, to whom then were you baptized? And they answered, into John's baptism. They didn't understand that Jesus of Nazareth was what, the one to whom John pointed. Being open to the gospel by the Spirit, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul laid hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came upon them as he did to the believers at Pentecost. What a great authentication of Paul's teaching. There were now 12 men who were true believers in the gospel. 12 more people to walk out and spread God's word. Verse 8 states that Paul went into the synagogue where he continued to preach and argue in the defense of what he preached for three months, during which time many came to faith and they believed. But then again, there were many who were hardened against what they called Christianity at that time. They called it the way from the, Jesus saying, I am the way. Seeing this, Paul, he just couldn't stand it, so he shook out his clothes, signifying that he was done with them, and that he would not even carry with him their dust. Sadly, no one realized he was actually shaking off their salvation. What happens next is very interesting. Paul was not forced out of the synagogue by the unbelievers, although normally that would have been the case. He would have been forced out. This time he was not harmed or even threatened, which was usually the case. He'd get beaten or thrown out of the city. This time he chooses to voluntarily remove the new believers from the synagogue and continue with his teaching at the school of Tyrannius. He did not want the new believers tainted by those obstinate unbelievers. And he could now teach daily not just on the Sabbath, since that's the only time they could get into the uh, temple. An additional benefit was that only Jews could attend the synagogue, and here anyone could come and hear the word of God. Paul continued to teach Jews and Gentiles there for two years. His desire to preach in Asia was now fulfilled. His ministry exploded all around Asia. That explosion is a true example of what happens when we wait on the Lord's timing. 
Some of this expansion might have been the result of the miracles Paul performed. It states in verses 11 and 12 that even articles of his clothing could bring healing to the sick. Demons were expelled in similar fashion. He was healing both bodies and souls. I am sure that this caused quite a stir around all of Ephesus and the surrounding area. So much so that some of the Jews, uh, no less, they took up the act of healing in verse 13. Then, as the words tell us, some itinerant Jews at the, that claimed to be exorcists took it upon themselves to even call out demons in the name of the Lord Jesus who Paul preaches. Among those were seven sons of a chief priest, Sceva. I mean, can you imagine? Seven sons of a chief priest are now doing this. The problem was that they were not believers and God would not be mocked by them. Recognizing these false exorcists had no power over them, the demon rejected the exorcism and called out to them. Verse 15 says, And the spirit answered and said, Now, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? This statement not only identifies them as false, but also confirms the power of Jesus over Satan and authenticates the gospel as spoken by Paul. Demons know, and they also acknowledge the power of God. What happens next is great. The man, powered by the, res uh, by the residing demons, they he leaps on the group of them. Now picture that tussle. There were bodies and clothes flying everywhere. He overpowered them and beat them so badly that they ran away naked. Quite a sight. Demons are powerful and nothing to be toyed with. These people were terrified. They saw the malice of the devil they served and the power of Jesus who they opposed. The occult of today should be viewed with the same caution because even demons give testimony that the power to cast out spirits is in Jesus and his apostles alone. If we resist the devil by a true walk of faith, the devil is unable to prevail against us. The Christmas season is a good time to evaluate our walk. How do you measure up? God uses many different methods to bring salvation to his chosen. This incident caused quite an uproar in the area. It brought with it such fear and such awe of God that as stated in verse 18, Many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Many who had practiced magic and sorcery brought out their books and burned them in the presence of all. They so feared what happened that they no longer wanted to practice their craft, even in secret. These books were very hard to come by and were so that and therefore very, very valuable. These books were, that burned at that time were valued at 50,000 pieces of silver or 50,000 days wages, a remarkable response to a remarkable incident. Imagine how quickly the word spread. I mean, with all this going on, people tussling, demons going, birds, books burning, you have to picture that they're all, I mean, just spreading all this word because nothing like this has ever happened before. It's no wonder that verse 20 tells us that the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. 
We may not see God's hand in such a dramatic way today, but he does work just as mightily, but he works in the hearts of men. In the spirit of this season, I ask you to pray to be used mightily by him. Don't let yourself get caught up in the, quote, magic of the season. Let God use you to spread the reason for our rejoicing. God provides an answer to our prayers. His answer is a gift. And what a gift it is. Salvation by grace alone. I want you all to, to think about it, unwrap that gift, and let us pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you so much for your word that gives us such enlightenment. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for enlightening us to that word. We thank you so much for your son that you've given us as a gift. A gift to handle our ransom for such undeserving as we. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.